Awesome Inc. presents the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame, a show that highlights how people throughout the Commonwealth of Kentucky pursue their definition of awesome through entrepreneurship, technology, and innovation. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame podcast. My name is Garrett Farbach, and I focus on the relational and creative projects here at Awesome Inc. in Lexington, Kentucky. During this past summer, Awesome Inc. hosted the first ever Lexington Entrepreneurship Day as an effort to bring together the entrepreneurial community of Lexington, Kentucky. We hosted it June 27th, 2018, and on that day, we had an amazing time celebrating entrepreneurship, but more importantly, we were celebrating the memory of Dr. Pierce Lyons, the founder of Alltech. This episode is a very sweet episode, I might say, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot. This person you're about to hear from was heavily influenced by Dr. Pierce Lyons, and I bet you've not only heard of, but have enjoyed his product. Speaking to a crowd at Base 110 in Lexington, Kentucky, here is Kurt Jones, the founder of Dippin' Dots. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, and um, I want to make this kind of an interactive thing, so I'll tell a little bit about my history uh, with both Dippin' Dots and with Alltech, actually. I worked at Alltech for a few years back in the 80s, <clears throat> back in the, the fun days. But um, before I get started, too, I wanted to let you know that one of the the new things I'm working on is a product called 40 Below Joe. It's actually a frozen coffee. And it's in little beads and you can eat them like, um, just like you can Dippin' Dots. So I'll tell you just a little bit about this real quickly while you're getting it. Um, my first idea on this product was to freeze espresso and see if I could bring it back to life. Uh, freeze it in liquid nitrogen, keep it at 40 Below Zero. I found that it kept all of its flavor and essence, not just for a few hours, but for days, for weeks, for even a year. So my first idea was try to um, sell this as a hot coffee, something that you would warm back up with a steamer. You can make cappuccinos, lattes, etc. So you could open up a coffee shop and have, not have all the expensive equipment. Um, several years ago, <laughs> I wanted to put chocolate chip cookies and other items into Dippin' Dot stores, but I wanted to send them in our 40 below distribution that we had set up. So I came up with the, with the term 40 below dough. And I thought that was kind of cool, but we never really got far enough along with it to really do it. So when I had the idea to do the coffee, I actually was trying to make a high temperature product because I was trying to get away from having to put things in, in freezers, you know, like our own freezers and, and try to go into like a grocery store. But we found that if you mix, um, well, basically, if you keep it at 40 below, the quality is even better. You know, there's no ice crystals, there's no sticking together. And so we decided to launch it in 40 below freezers. And I always liked that name, 40 below dough. And then I thought, well, why not 40 below Joe? I grew up on a farm in Southern Illinois. So I think a farmer is kind of the ultimate entrepreneur, if you think about it. They're risking everything they got every year, putting it in the ground, <clears throat> waiting to see if the weather is right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in about 1980, I got interested in alternative energies, and I liked the idea of taking corn and turning it into ethanol. So I started kind of studying that. In school, I became a microbiologist. I got my bachelor's and my master's degree. 
in micro, and I always liked the industrial side of micro. So <clears throat> I was always interested in fermentations, growing yeast, growing bacteria, that kind of thing. In about 1984, 1985, I got a chance to go to an ethanol fuel school, alcohol fuel school, I think they called it, and it was at Alltech in Lexington. And of course, that's where I got to meet Pierce. But I remember the one thing that, um, that always stood out with, with Pierce was just his bubbling energy, uh, so positive about everything. And, and of course, he was talking about things that I really enjoyed, which was alternative energy. And I remember when I left, he actually gave me a pretty big container of amylase enzymes. Now, that may not mean a lot to anyone, but it meant a lot to me because you can take that to add to your corn and cook it and turn your starch into sugar before you give it to the yeast. But I thought, man, what a big sample to give someone. You know, it's, it's just kind of amazing. It's a, kind of a startup company. <clears throat> but it was probably, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars worth of product. And I remember taking it back. We used it. It worked great. Um, but anyway, I stayed in touch with Pierce. And probably within a year or so, I was, I was actually getting toward the end of getting my master's thesis. And I went to interview for a job down in Winchester, Kentucky. And I came back by and talked to Pierce. <clears throat> and I told him that I still needed to do a little bit of work to finish my thesis, but we didn't have some of the lab equipment that I needed, like fermenters and things like that. And so he said, well, uh, you know, you can use mine. And I said, well, I've got a week's worth of vacation from where I'm working. I was working at a prison at the time. The prison actually had an ethanol plant in it, by the way. It was uh, run by inmates. I learned more about making alcohol from those guys <laughs> than I did at the, uh, at the alcohol school. But anyway, I took a week's vacation. I came down to Alltech. I finished some of the experiments I needed to finish my thesis. And anyway, after talking to Pierce two or three more times, he eventually told me that he was getting into the uh, animal nutrition side of the business. And of course, I'd been growing bacteria to make lysine. Lysine is an amino acid that we use in, uh, in pig feeds. Uh, when you add soybean meal for the protein, it's lacking in lysine a little bit. So you can you could add three pounds of lysine and keep out 100 pounds of soybean meal. And I had learned that all this lysine was being made in Japan and being shipped to the United States at that time. So I worked about two or three years on that and had a, uh, <clears throat> actually had an organism that was about 75% um, of what the Japanese had. So I thought, well, by the time I get done, I'm close enough that I can open up a plant here. And that was my big goal. <clears throat> but Pierce said, well, why don't you just come and work for me? So anyway, I thought, well, that's, um, uh, that's an idea. Why don't I go to work for Pierce? He's got this company that's already started. He's getting into animal nutrition. <clears throat> and of course, he wasn't extracting, you know, uh, like certain amino acids. He was just putting the whole bacteria back into the feeds for different purposes. And I knew how to do that. I knew how to grow, uh, <clears throat> you know, run fermenters and do plate counts and all that. So I went to work for Pierce in August of 1986. And um, in that time period, we used to freeze our bacteria into thin sheets, and we would put it in a freeze dryer, turn it into a powder, and blend it into the different products that we had. But I started experimenting with using liquid nitrogen, which was about 320 below zero versus about 109 below zero, which is what we were using at the time. <clears throat> and I found that... Um, you could pour the cultures into the nitrogen and make a big blob, but it still worked. Or you could do it the other way around. But I found if you dribbled it in slowly, you could actually make little pellets or little beads, if you will. And that was a lot nicer for um, freeze drying. You had more surface area and so on and so forth. 
So anyway, um, Pierce liked the idea. We went down that road. We started doing our bacterial production and our freezing that way. <clears throat> but about a month or two later, I was making homemade ice cream with a neighbor in Lexington here. And I said, you know, I love homemade ice cream. I love the flavor. Um, but I wish it wouldn't have such big ice crystals. Oh, there we go. Um, the faster that you freeze something, the, the smaller the ice crystal is. The water molecules don't have time to line up in, in crystals. So anyway, I just said, you know, I wish we could make this where it had smaller ice crystals. And I didn't even have the idea to, to do what I was doing yet, but I thought about, well, how can I make this homemade ice cream maker get colder? Can I use dry ice, et cetera, et cetera? And then the uh, proverbial light bulb came on, and I said, well, why not just dribble ice cream into liquid nitrogen and make little beads? And so that's what I did. For about the next six months, I tried to focus on what I was doing at Alltech, and we, we were very busy. We were growing very fast. But about six months later, I came to Pierce and I said, you know, this ice cream thing is bugging me because I've been working on it on weekends and some nights and things like that. And uh, I very sheepishly said, you know, I, I feel like, you know, my wife and I have talked about it. I think we want to try to pursue this in some way. And Pierce, in his way, he just said, you know, I understand it. And he said, I'm, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. And um, he basically threw a party for me. And he uh, bought me a briefcase and sent me out the door with, you know, basically anytime you need help, you know, come and let me know, you know, you know, stay in touch, basically. So the two things that he told me before I left, I'll always remember it. <clears throat> he said that um, if you can, you know, basically make something for a dollar and sell it for two, you know, if you can, if you can basically, you know, as far as your, your cost of goods, your, your direct labor costs, he said, if you can keep that 50% margin or better, he said, you'll have money dancing in your backyard. But I kind of kept that in mind as we started dipping dots. And it's very hard in the beginning. There's no margins in the beginning. <laughs> um, I mean, there is, there can be on product once you get a little volume, but you have so many expenses and so much overhead trying to launch something that it all just kind of, you know, you're really fighting for the first two or three years a lot of times. But I always remember he said that and later, uh, well, the other thing he told me, he said, remember that people buy from people. I just always remember what Pierce said about that. People buy from people. So kind of keep that in mind. Remember that you're, you know, somebody's writing a check or putting a credit card down. It's a person on the other end. So uh, try to keep that in mind. But later, later on, four or five years into the business, <clears throat> Dippin' Dots started growing at about 100% per year. So basically, we were doubling every year. And... <laughs> What Pierce told me came true. We were able to do that mostly from cash flow, a little bit of bank financing along the way. <clears throat> but by keeping that 50% margin, you know, we were able to have the, enough money and enough capital to, con, you know, to buy bigger tanks, buy bigger trucks, hire more people. And um, sometimes when you talk to accountants today, they look at a lot of other tools, but I just remember that advice that Pierce gave me, it really worked well. The first thing that we did, uh, first of all, we did everything wrong. <laughs> we, um, when I quit my job, um, I ran into, well, we, we actually did a little bit of a test market real close to here in the, in the old festival market. I don't know if you know where that is or not, but it's right here on the, the same area that we're in generally. Um, for, for about two weekends, basically, we gave out samples and even sold a few, you know, cups for like 89 cents or something like that, just kind of getting people's reaction to it. I met someone at that 
event that said, hey, you know, I own a few restaurants in Indianapolis and a couple other places. And he said, we're getting ready to put something in Lexington. And there's a spot open right beside where I'm at. We could build out a store and do a Dippin' Dot store. So we assumed that he was a, an expert in what he did. And so I took about half of my life savings at that point and gave it to him in the form of a check. And um, man, I didn't see much of him once I wrote that check. <laughs> so we were supposed, and I quit my job in the middle of the winter to go into the ice cream business. So I quit on November, <laughs> yeah. um, November 15th, I quit my job. Um, we were supposed to be open by the end of the year, by, by Christmas. Well, man, we didn't even have the shell was still like, everything just slowed down once he got that check. Well, anyway, the guy had basically skipped town with our money. Um, he got a few people started. We ended up getting this thing open on March the 18th. That's how far behind we were. So at that time, we had no money left to do any advertising or anything. Fortunately, we got a couple of news stations that got interested in what we were doing. They did a couple pieces on us. So it gave us enough exposure to get through the summer. And finally, at the end of the year, we decided that sales in that store, what it did for us, it was a total failure on a financial side, but it gave us a chance. Uh, I made product there. I had a 300 gallon liquid nitrogen tank. I was able to develop a lot of the flavors, a lot of the branding for Dippin' Dots. And then we went and got a, um, an appointment with Opryland Theme Park in Nashville, Tennessee. Opryland was about the size of a Six Flags Park back then, and they were very interested in it. So in 1989, we opened up in our first amusement park. And I literally decided to move back to Illinois because they told me that they projected that they would sell about 100 gallons a day. <clears throat> well, my machine in the back of my store would make four gallons an hour, so I did the math. I thought, ah, that's not gonna work. So we, we knew we had to have a bigger machine, a little bit bigger place to work out of. So I turned my old garage back in Illinois into an ice cream plant. And uh, we started wholesaling from there. <laughs> <clears throat> Opryland did not sell 100 gallons a day. They probably sold about a gallon a day. Um, but nobody knew what it was, you know. So we tried it again the second year. We actually came up with the kiosk concept, which you see a lot in theme parks today. We thought, well, we'll get it out into the crowd. <clears throat> and Opryland was great to work with. They just, they didn't know what was going on either. It's like people should love this product, but nobody's buying it. So we put it in a, a kiosk, and the days that you would go out and actually sample it a little bit, you'd get some sales, but we weren't running the park at that time, they were. And so they didn't really have any incentive to work really hard behind a Dippin' Dots kiosk and try to answer questions and all that. So I finally got that letter that said, um, <clears throat> you know, we like you, but come get your equipment. This was after two years. Uh, we were totally broke at this point. <laughs> um, but, uh, one of the guys that worked there, he said, I'm gonna try to get you in to see the new food service supervisors coming in this year. And it just so happened the guy came from the merchandising side of the park. And he said, look, I've heard that you got this great product, but it just didn't sell here. He said, would you be interested in coming in and running it yourself? I said, oh, I'd love to. Um, I didn't know if we could make it work, but we had had some success at some state fairs and places where you know, if you had a crowd of people, you could give out little samples and people would come back around and buy it. So um, when we opened up in that third year, we had to come up with about fifteen or $20,000 to build out this little space. It was next to the petting zoo in Opryland. And I remember putting the uh, menu board up the night before we opened, and it was snowing. Uh, but the next day, we still sold $300 worth of ice cream. And then on that Sunday, which was, that was a Saturday, 
on Sunday we sold 800. I thought, wow, this is more than we sold any day last year, and it's like 50 degrees outside. So we did. We had a lot of success that year. We sold about $365,000 worth of ice cream. And I learned two things from that. <clears throat> I learned that um, we had created what they call additional spending for the theme park. So that $365,000, their ice cream sales overall had only gone down 90,000. Now we were paying like 25% of the sales or something like that, but it shows that you can increase the spending. And the other term that I use, a theme park term, <clears throat> is called per caps. So that means they look at everybody that comes to the park and they say, you know, uh, uh, you know, if you have 10,000 people, for example, <clears throat> and you sell $1,000 worth of something, then you, you basically had a 10 cent per cap on that item. So we learned that Dippin' Dots, the goal at that time was to get it up to about between a five and 10 cent per cap. So we were able to do that and actually exceed that. And later on, as Dippin' Dots became popular, we had some theme parks that were approaching almost a dollar per cap. We became you know, one of the best selling items in a lot of theme parks, but it took many years to get to that point. But that's kind of how Dippin' Dots established its brand is through theme parks. And um, the last thing I'll say about our sales is probably about oh, six or seven years ago, we were going to, um, uh, we, well, we basically in Nashville, we'd opened a few stores in Nashville, and that's where I actually started playing around with the coffee a little bit. I wanted to put coffee in my Dippin' Dot stores. But we also started doing a thing where we started putting the little freezers like you see back there into more local markets. Um, the reason that we could do that is because these theme parks had established this high price, basically, uh, you know, so if you bought a cup of ice cream at Six Flags back in, you know, 2005 for four bucks, you know, we were probably giving it to them for like 75 or 80 cents. So they were seeing most of the margin. So we decided that we would go into some of the local markets and try to get a little bit of that margin as well. So we kind of started what we call a distribution model, you know, for Dippin' Dots. And that's something that's really helped the company the last few years is getting these little freezers out. There's probably close to 15,000 of these little Dippin' Dot freezers out. Uh, and there's still a lot of room to grow with that. You know, I, like I said earlier, I grew up on a farm, so I was somewhat used to um, not having a lot of extra money laying around. And I saw my, I live with my grand, my, my parents, but also my grandfather lived with us. And my grandfather was really like a great entrepreneur himself. He, uh, he would do all kinds of things besides farm work to try to make money. Uh, we even We even grew broom corn when I was, I barely remember, so I can't say that I really participated. I just remember seeing it, but uh, my granddad made brooms on the side. He had all the broom making equipment, so he would do that during the winter. Uh, just always trying to do something to make a little extra money. <clears throat> so I kind of grew up used to not, you know, having to kind of scrape and scratch a little bit. Um, my family did get involved. My dad, <clears throat> um, he did end up mortgaging our farm at one time to get... Uh, a $30,000 loan. Well, that scared me to death because that's the last thing I wanted to do was to quit a job. I got a master's degree in microbiology. I quit a job. We've used all of our savings, which, you know, we didn't have a ton. We probably had ten dollars or $15,000 in savings and we sold a car and all that. But now my dad's wanting to mortgage his farm and that really scared me to death. But it also was like, there's no way we're going to quit on this. You know, we're going to get this going. I think as a startup, there's so many things you're hit with that you didn't plan for. And uh, there's a lot of expenses to starting a business. So 
I don't want to sound negative because I think I think entrepreneurs is what really drives the country. To be honest with you, I mean, you know, all the uh, the new businesses that we've created over the last you know twenty or thirty years, um, uh, I think is why the economy does so well. But it, it can be tough. The mental part of it is is the hardest part. I mean, just I think you just have to have a no quit attitude. You you have to be willing to work twenty four hours that day if you need to, uh, whatever you need to do to get the money in before the uh, the bill you know has to be paid. Uh, there's a lot of uh, and a lot of you will, will find out, or you may already know, I mean, cash flow is one of the most important things to a business. I mean, profitability is great, and you want that, but it's really how, how do I lengthen my runway? But I look at business kind of like a, uh, a sport, and there is a time clock running, because every day that you're in business, you have overhead, you have expenses, and so you have to, uh, even if you got the greatest thing in the world getting ready to come out, and it's going to have all these great margins, <clears throat> you've got to figure out how to buy enough time to get this out to get it start producing and and you know bring in the sales so there's a lot to it it's very tough what i tell people if they're thinking about starting a business you, you know usually you have either a product or a service be your hardest critic like ask yourself 24 hours later was that really a good idea you know so in other words i think if you're going to start a business you don't want to become an entrepreneur just to be an entrepreneur you really have to have something that's sellable you know you and and some people can sell a product that's not even good but i think you really gotta in your own mind you've got to really be convinced that what you're offering to the public is something that they will eventually pay money for and so yeah now so how do you create that story well like i said dipping dots was i think unique enough that it kind of had its own story had its own mystique um so i think it comes down to you know if you have a product or you have a service, you just have to give it your best to think, you know, what five or six things can I tell people about this product or service that's gonna make them wanna buy this? And I have to believe it myself. I think that, um, you know, kids grew up on Dippin' Dots. A lot of those kids drink coffee. So we think with the edible product, we, we think um, probably, um, where we used to say Dippin' Dots was kind of an eight to 18 year old, kind of your, your main market, I think this is probably skewed older than that. And we actually have a lot of adults that actually like this product because they're coffee drinkers. <laughs> so I think probably anywhere from, you know, 15 to 35 might be our main market. I mean, I think it's still too early to tell. We do know that we put it in a Grand Canyon University out in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, back in January. And I know they sold, um, probably about a thousand cups in the first couple months. And so we know that the college age um, is a good, a good crowd to go after. So that's one of our targets is to get into more universities like coffee shops, gift shops. Um, but we think uh, it also can work in theme parks, you know, because now you can get a little caffeine kick in the afternoon. Instead of just eating a cup of ice cream, you know, you can eat this. And we're gonna have more flavors. We're gonna have a salted caramel, we're gonna have a mocha, um, you know, pumpkin spice, you know, some things like that. Okay, thank you. All right, well, that's it. We want to say thank you again so much for checking out the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame podcast. Special thanks to Lee Rosevere for the music that you hear in the show and to Lexington's Awesome Inc. for hosting us from their space. Again, I'm Garrett Farbach. Make sure to check back and tune in next time. We'll see you then. <laughs>